All right, good morning. How are we? I'll let you know just so you don't get surprised. If you see a two-minute timer come up while I'm talking, just ignore it. <laughs> you, you, can, you can be certain I'm going to ignore it. So, um, It's good to see you guys. Um, we've got a lot to do this morning, so we'll get right to work here just in a second. But uh, if you're a guest with us at Redemption Hill this morning, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I was praying for you in particular uh, this morning as I got ready uh, for our time together. And I just prayed that um, as you come to Redemption Hill, be it the first time, the second time, or maybe even the 50th time, uh, that as you would come here, you would not be confronted in, in anything that we do uh, by the trappings of religion and, and things that you may have experienced in the past, but that you would be confronted with Jesus, our risen Redeemer. Um, and so my prayer for us as a people and my prayer for you is that Jesus would be the one who would do the confronting this morning, um, that we in our music and in our talk and in our purple gym floors and um, in our back parking and whatever it would be, you wouldn't be confronted by anything that would keep you from him, but that he would be the one who would confront you this morning. So that's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for you. Uh, I am glad to see you. Uh, let me pray for us as we get started, because like I said, we've got a lot to do um, and not a whole lot of time to do it in. So Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together here this morning. Lord, we thank you first and foremost for your son, Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that the words that I say uh, would exalt him and make much of him, uh, that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would take my words and do what only he can do with them. And Lord, I would pray that you would uh, hold fast to your promise, that your word would go forward and it would not return empty. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, we ask that you would do what only you can do in the time we've got together. Amen. Amen. We have been working our way through the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and make your way there. It's in the New Testament. You can go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And we've taken the last couple of months to begin walking through Acts. And I can't tell you how long we'll actually do it because I really just don't know. Um, I like the book of Acts. I like it more and more the more we're in it. So who knows how long we'll be in it. But if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts. Uh, we've been walking through it in our series called Enjoying God and Engaging His Mission. And I just wanted you to know that that's not a clever title that we chose to come up with. I'm really not good at those kinds of things. Um, but those are really my goals for going through this book. I mean, I pray that the more we continue to study the book of Acts and the more we see God is faithful to his character and faithful to his promises to his people, that we would become a people who would enjoy God deeply. That in increasing measure, week in and week out, we would learn to enjoy God more deeply. And that our enjoyment of God would compel us forward to engaging with him on his mission, on his mission. The mission that he purposed from beforehand to call us into, his, his mission of redemption. So that's really the, the aim of this book as we go through it, to, to be a people who increasingly enjoy God more and more, and that are compelled by that enjoyment to go and be a part of his mission. The book of Acts, I'll remind you, because some of you are new with us, the book of Acts is part two of a, of a two-volume work written by a man named Luke, who was actually a doctor. Acts, the second part of his writing, was really about what the risen Jesus is doing right now in heaven and continuing to do here on earth through his people, empowered by his spirit, the same spirit of God that raised him from the dead. Volume one of his work, 
The gospel according to Luke really is a biography of Jesus and, and he sought to cover who Jesus was, what he said, and what he taught while he was on earth with us. And he did it for a man named Theophilus who was a patron who, who kind of financed Luke's effort at writing this. And Luke, as we learn in his gospel, and we've talked about it in the past, went on a detailed journey in a detailed study finding eyewitnesses and firsthand accounts of people who had experienced Jesus on earth. And Luke wrote his gospel so that Theophilus and those who would read it, including us, would have certainty about what we had learned and what we had had seen and, and what we had begun to believe about the person of Jesus Christ. So Acts is part two. What Jesus now ascended into heaven is continuing to do through his people empowered by his spirit. And it's important that we get that information this morning and that you kind of keep that in your mind because to understand where we are in Acts right now, and we're going to read it in just a second, we've got to go back into Luke to do some work. Because without understanding what Luke was writing in his first biography, where we are in the book of Acts might seem kind of random and and maybe a little bit out of place. But when you understand the purpose for the two books and you begin to see them together as one larger work, they're going to make sense. So if you've got your Bible open to Acts, go to chapter 9. And I'm going to read for us where we are this morning, Acts 9, starting in verse 32. And then we're going to immediately flip back left to the gospel according to Luke in chapter 5. And we're going to see some things that Jesus said and some things that Jesus did while he was on earth that will help make sense of what Luke's talking about here in Acts chapter 9. So Acts chapter 9, start verse 32. He's going to start talking about Peter, which is going to be interesting because we've spent the last little bit talking about Saul of Tarsus. And, and now like kind of in a Tarantino-esque style, Luke is going to take his camera and he's going to spin it over here to Peter. And we haven't heard from Peter in a couple of chapters. And he's going to stick with Peter for a little while. And Saul's going to continue on his life and his journey. We're going to come back to him in a little bit. So now we're going to switch over here to Peter and Acts 9.32 says, As Peter went here and there, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, And she was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, and they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come down without delay. And so Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. And he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. All right, now, I want you to turn left. I want you to go to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to go to chapter 5. And we're going to try to make some connections here that will help us make sense of what Luke really wants us to understand when he tells us those random two stories of Peter right there before he goes on to talk about Peter's journey with a man named Cornelius. So Luke chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17. 
Now he's going to tell us about Jesus. On one of those days, as he was teaching, talking about Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, and they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him, talking about Jesus, to heal. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to get the pictures. We're going to read and we're going to try to understand. Jesus was teaching. He was on earth and he was involved in his teaching ministry, and most likely he was at someone's home, as we'll understand in a minute. So imagine that we're having community like you just saw. The Arboretum community is meeting in Galilee and Jesus shows up to their community meeting. Now Jesus shows up and Jesus starts teaching. And as you can imagine, people started crowding in and coming. So a community group had Jesus teaching them the scriptures for the most part. And crowds began to gather. That's what's happening. And in the crowds that began to gather, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law showed up. So these guys showed up to check out this man, Jesus. And you can imagine that as the crowd formed in the house and the people were anxious to meet this man, Jesus, and to hear this man, Jesus, and the scribes and the Pharisees show up, they're going to make space for them to get in the house. And so most likely, Jesus occupied a particular position in the home where he could teach as the people would gather. But right in front of him, the scribes and the Pharisees had taken up all the space in front of Jesus, most likely. And they were there not just to listen to Jesus, but they were there to to pick at Jesus, to wait for him to say something that they could then attack, but people kept coming to listen. So this is community group with Jesus teaching. That's a a great day. You need to know that. If Jesus shows up at your community, let him teach. Most likely crowds are going to gather, and that's what's happening here. In verse 18, It says, behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. So you've got the crowds pressing in to hear Jesus, you've got the religious folk sitting there taking up all the space trying to pick at Jesus, and then you've got some desperate friends who bring their friend, a a paralyzed man, a paralytic to Jesus, and they can't get in. And I was listening to somebody preach about this this week, and I loved it because I would never thought about it. And he said, these men were desperate to get this sick, this paralyzed man to Jesus, but they couldn't because the religious people were in the way, occupying all the space. Isn't that just how it is today? People sick, desperate to get to Jesus, and it's the religious people that seem to stand in the way. That's a whole other sermon. So here's what these friends start to do. Desperate to get this man to Jesus, they get an idea. They go up on the roof of this house where they're meeting. And they realize we've got some ropes. We've got a paralyzed man on a bed. We've got some tiles that we can pull out. Let's tie some rope to the bed and let's lower him down right in front of Jesus. Because if we can drop him down right in front of Jesus in the midst of this crowd, Jesus will have to do something. So picture this man paralyzed on a cot. He can't move. His friends are taking him up to the top of a building. He's got to be thinking, what in the world are you doing? There's hope for me yet. Don't throw me off the building. And his friends start pulling tiles up off the roof and start to lower him down. And here he is coming down into a room that's so crowded that nobody can get in. And there's Jesus sitting there. And here he is just on his cot because he can't move. Coming down. He's like, hi, Jesus. You know, I mean, this is what's happening here, okay? I mean, can you see it in your brain? So they're desperate to get him down. And verse 20 says, when he saw their faith, he's talking about Jesus here. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. That's a big statement. 
We're not going to have time to sit on that statement. That's a big statement. Nobody else can make that statement. Krishna can't make that statement. Buddha can't make that statement. Joseph Smith can't make that statement. Everyone else can look at you and say, I recognize your sin and I can establish for you a system of things that you can believe and you can do that can try to deal with your sin. But no one can look at you and say, man, your sin is forgiven except Jesus. And this is what he does. And the scribes and the Pharisees, this is what they were there for. They began to question, saying, who is it who speaks these blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And in reading this, you want to just say, okay, you got it. All right, who can forgive sins but God? And he just forgave sin. Come on, take the next step. One more, come on. But Jesus knew better. In verse 22, it says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? And so here's what Jesus is saying. If I just say, your son, man, your sin is forgiven, you can't see that. You won't really know what happened because I'm dealing with his heart, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to forgive his sin, and I'm going to heal his body. This is what I'm about to do. Verse 24, it says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and he picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. You can bet he did. I mean, that man showed up paralyzed, not able to move his body on a cot, being lowered in it through a roof. You can bet he walked out of that place glorifying God and dancing. That's not hard to imagine. Verse 26 says, an amazement seized them all. I love that. Amazement didn't wash over the room like a hush, you know. Amazement seized them. What Jesus had just done, his power in their midst seized them. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Yeah, they had. (laughs) That man laid on a cot, came in through a roof, made that thing up and walked out. So, while Jesus was on earth, he healed those whose bodies were broken and he forgave the sins of men and women. Now flip over to Luke chapter eight. I'm gonna show you something else. Let's go to Luke eight. We're gonna start in verse 40. Now keep that story in your mind and keep that picture in your mind. We're going to do a couple more and then we're going to go back to Acts. Luke 8, let's start in verse 40. Now when Jesus had returned, the crowd, they welcomed him in for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now Jesus is teaching again and people are coming to hear him again. So Jesus is still on the earth. He's still teaching and crowds are still gathering. And so people were gathering to hear Jesus and, and experience the ministry of Jesus on earth. And, and there comes a man, Luke says, named Jairus, who, who starts to come pressing in on him. And, and, and so what you've got to understand is Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, Luke says. And back in the old day, back then, prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the synagogue was the place where the people of God would go and they would hear the word of God read and the word of God explained and together they would worship the God of the word. It was like a church building. It was like what we do right here. And Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue. So 
This man coming to him, this man pressing through the crowd named Jairus, you can think of him like a pastor or an, an elder in the church. And so Jesus is teaching and crowds are coming and here's a man who's a ruler in the synagogue, who's a ruler in the church. Now he's gonna press in into this crowd where Jesus is to come and see Jesus and falling at Jesus' feet, Luke says, and that's just something grown men don't do. You need to go here when you read this story. This is just something grown men, dignified grown men don't do. Pastors and elders and respected leaders in the church and in the city don't just run and fall at another man's feet. So why did he do it? For the rest of verse 41, Luke says, he implored him, talking about Jairus to Jesus, to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now when we read this story, you've got to go there. I mean, I want you not to just listen to me talk. You've got to go there with this man, Jairus. He has a 12-year-old daughter, an only daughter, and she's dying. So moms and dads, you you need to get there when we read this story. Everything that this man has thought about his future, all the imagination that he has put into this daughter, the hopes of seeing her married, the hopes of seeing her have kids, the life that he has anticipated and the life that he has imagined is about to go away. And you've got to get there when when you read this, okay? So he's come in and he's pressed into Jesus and all dignity, all honor, all respect, all reputation, everything about him has gone out the window because his one and only daughter is about to die. And now he's come to Jesus. My daughter is near death. Will you please come? He doesn't know this Jesus. This Jesus stands for the destruction of everything that he has been a part of in the synagogue. But God's given him some faith and he's desperate and he's come to him. Will you please come? Will you please come? And Luke says, Jesus went. And as Jesus went, the people began to press around him. I want you to, to notice something about what Jesus is dealing with here. This is kind of like a O.J. Simpson sidebar. Jesus is being pressed in on and surrounded by and pressured by a lot of people that he loves. He loves Jairus. He loves Jairus' daughter. He loves all the men, the women, the children, everybody who's pressing in around him. And here he is. He's faced with a very difficult decision. There is a man whose daughter is dying. He needs to get to. But to get to that man's daughter who's dying, Jesus has to deal with innumerable needs and struggles that are pressing in and around him. And you've got to see that, that ministry and times in ministry and seasons in ministry are a lot like this. A lot of difficult decisions have to be made. Everybody there Jesus loved. But Jesus was one man with 24 hours. He he couldn't get to everybody and he couldn't do everything. And he had to make difficult decisions. And I I take the sidebar to say, we deeply love you. Your pastors, your elders, your community leaders. We deeply love you. And and we ask that at times, if you don't feel like we've gotten back to you sometimes as quick as you would like for us to, or haven't returned a call, or, or gotten to a place as quick as you would like us to, I, I ask that you forgive us. We, we deeply love you, and I ask that you never stop continuing to, to come to us and, and to implore to us to continue to love you and to serve you, but I want you to recognize that sometimes we have to go through five crises to get to your crises. That there are sometimes, there are times in, in ministry and in life as a pastor and a leader when the needs press in on you and you can only do but so many things. 
I never want you to stop coming to us. I never want you to stop being honest with us. I never want you to come and stop and stop coming to us and saying, come, I, I need you to pray. I need you to do this. But I just ask sincerely from the bottom of my heart that, that you forgive us if you feel like we've let you down somewhere. But there are times in, in this life and in this role that the crowds begin to press in. And it's tough to get through that crowd to a particular need. But this is what's happening to Jesus. What's he going to do? This man's daughter is about to die. And the people won't let him pass. The more steps he takes, the more they crowd around him. Verse 43 says, There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she couldn't be healed by anyone. So here's Jesus trying to get through the crowd. There's more needs there than he can even begin to count. And he's trying to get through the crowds and they keep pressing in on him. And Luke begins to single out this one particular woman who had a need, a a woman who had a particular, maybe like a uterine hemorrhage for almost 12 years, a nonstop discharge of blood out of her body. And and what you've got to understand is, and not just try to picture the, the, the nature of this disease and this illness, what you've got to understand is that according to Jewish law, this woman was ceremonially and ritually unclean. This woman was an unclean woman and she could never be clean because she could never stop bleeding. So she's been bleeding from her body for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. Don't you get this? And not only has she been bleeding and is she desperate to get this, this ailment to end, but she's unclean. So that means that no one can touch her. For 12 years, no one's held her hand. No one's given her a hug. No one's given her a kiss. No one has comforted her. No one has cared for her. No one can come near to her to touch her because they would then become unclean. And not only was she unclean, but there was nothing that she could do to make it stop. And so for 12 years, she had spent everything that she had going from every doctor and every healing center and every opportunity and praying and fasting to see this thing fixed. And it's never gotten fixed and she's desperate. Most likely she wasn't married Because if she would have been married, she probably would have been divorced by this time because there was no way because of her uncleanliness for her to be a part of any type of marital intimacy with her husband. So she most likely had no kids to care for her and take care of her. We don't know how old she was as a woman in this particular time. We don't know if she was a young woman or an older woman. This is a woman who has been alone in her suffering, in her pain, in her situation for almost 12 desperate years. No one has been able to care for her and love her and touch her. I mean, can you you imagine that? I mean, don't just imagine the nature of the illness. Imagine the reality of what that means for her life. And she's desperate. And she's heard that Jesus has come to town. And she's pressed through the crowds in a place that she wasn't supposed to be. She's not supposed to be in the crowds of people. Anybody she touches becomes unclean. Now, they've got to go through the process of of rituals of cleansing themselves to make themselves presentable before God again. She's not supposed to be there. But she's desperate. Jesus is here. She presses through the crowds, but what's Jesus going to do? Jesus needs to get to this man's house. His 12-year-old daughter is dying, and the more he tries to get forward, the more people get in his way, and now this woman, this woman who's been bleeding as long as this little girl's been alive, whose illness has left her alone. This little girl had a daddy. This woman's got nothing. What's he going to do? Verse 44 says, she came up behind him, and she touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. See, what you've got to see and what Luke wants you to see is he's not really interested in the details here of how this particularly happened. 
What he's interested in is you understanding that this woman had faith given to her by God to simply reach out with all that she had to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. To just reach out and touch Jesus. And in that act of faith that God had given this woman at this particular time, God's power flowed through Jesus to this woman. And in the instant her faith reached out and touched Jesus, she was healed. That's what Luke wants you to see here. He doesn't really care about the details of how that exchange happened and how does this work here and there. No, she had faith. And she just reached out to touch Jesus. And God's power was released at that moment. And she was healed. Verse 45. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Now you know he knew that, right? It's a rhetorical question. Jesus wasn't confused. Who, who was it that touched me? And when everybody denied it, Peter, he said, we're going to go back to Peter and Acts. Peter said, Master, the, the crowd surrounds you and they're pressing in on you. And imagine Jesus saying, thanks for pointing out the obvious, Peter. <laughs> Leave it up to Peter. Really? There's, oh, there's people. <laughs> thanks, Pete. Verse, 40, verse 46. <clears throat> but Jesus said, Someone's touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she wasn't hidden, and I love that. I, I mean, how did she know she wasn't hidden? You thought about that when you read this? I mean, how did she know that she was made? I mean, the crowds are pressing in. Jesus can't move. There's people touching him all over the place. Jesus looks around and says, who's touched me? Nobody knows who's touched him. And she perceives that she wasn't hidden. It, it might have been that she might have gotten up and realized she wasn't bleeding anymore. And there was no way you were going to hide that kind of excitement from this woman. She was probably made out of her joy. I don't know. We'll find out one day. But she knew she wasn't hidden. Look at her response. She came trembling, falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, I want you to know something here. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus calls anyone daughter. Do you know that? Nowhere else in the Bible, and in Jesus' interactions with people, does he call anyone else daughter. He doesn't tell us why he does, but I like to think that the way Luke tells this story with Jairus and his daughter and Jesus and this woman and what it meant for her to experience life the way she had to experience it because of her uncleanliness, that Jesus looked at this woman who probably didn't have a Jairus. She probably didn't have a dad or knew she probably didn't have a husband or anyone else who would care for her, who would do all they could to see her taken care of, who would try to get to Jesus on her behalf to get Jesus back to her. But a woman who had fended for herself, had suffered alone in herself, did not have a, a fatherly figure or a man that we can tell in the middle of this picture to care for her. I have a sense that Jesus looked at her and called her daughter because no one else in her life took that kind of position and that kind of care for her. And what I I hope you to understand, just as you read this and go back and and think on this, is that there's a lot of you who can probably relate to this. I mean, if there's one thing that's common in the church today, and we hear it more and more and more, it's daddy issues. And a lot of you, men and women, I mean, I would single out the women here because he calls them daughter, but the reality of it is it's across the board. Most of you probably have issues with 
the dad who raised you. Some of you don't even know the dad who raised you. Many of you were probably hurt by the man who raised you. And here's what Jesus is saying. That faith, as you become a son or daughter of God, he begins to take that position of fatherly care in your life. He begins to be the one who cares for you. He begins to be the one who protects you. He begins to be the one who provides for you. He begins to be the one who gives you the identity that you were missing, that you were deprived of by your earthly father. Jesus looks at this woman who is desperate and alone and in a moment of unbelievable tenderness and care and comfort. He calls her daughter. I don't know. Another sidebar. We have a lot of them this morning. But can you imagine what, what that moment was like for her? I mean, really? I mean, nobody's touched her. 12 years. Cared for her. Probably spoken any words of affection to her because they couldn't be with her. And here it was in a moment. It was, it was gone. She was cleansed. Her body was healed. And this man just loved her and called her daughter. Imagine what that must have been like. Everything about her life has changed. Jesus has made her whole and he's made her clean. But what about the little girl? And what about her? That's how the story started, right? Look at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house, talking about Jairus' house, came to him and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now go there with Jairus. He's left his wife, he's left his daughter, sick and dying back at home. He's made whatever trip he had to make. It may have been in his town, we don't really know. He was a ruler of the synagogue. Was Jesus near the synagogue? We don't really know. But he's made whatever trip he had to make to get to Jesus. And he's pressed his way through the crowds to get to Jesus. He's stripped himself of all reputation and respect and dignity and fallen at this man's feet. He's begged of this man to come to his house to say, to do anything possible, to heal his daughter. People have gotten in the way. Jesus stopped to deal with this woman, praise God, and now a man comes with zero bedside manner and says, leave him alone. Quit talking to him. Your daughter's dead. There's no need for you to bother him anymore. Go there with Jairus. I mean, can you imagine what that must feel like? Jairus wasn't there to see his little girl die. Can can you imagine that? I mean, all that he did to try to take care of his little girl. I mean, if you want to know how much he loved her, just his effort to get to Jesus and lose all dignity before this man and go to this man who all rulers and scholars of the synagogues and temples and Jewish believers disliked and hated. He goes to him to beg him to come if there would be anything he could do to help his little girl. If you doubt or don't know how much he loves his little girl, just going to Jesus should tell you. And he left her to go to Jesus. And while he was gone, she died. You've got to go there with him. I can't imagine, honestly, I can't imagine that. When when our son died, he died in my arms. I I, I was actually holding him. I was the only person on earth who ever got to hold him. I was the only person on earth who ever opened his eyes to look at when he heard my voice. I was the one holding him when he took his last breath. I can't imagine I mean, I know how much I love him and the rest of my kids that if I needed to get over here for the one thing that had a hope to heal them, I would, I would do it, but I can't imagine not being there when they died. And this was the situation that Jairus was in. 
He didn't get to be with this little girl because he loved her. And he was trying to do what he could to save her life. But she died. And now what's Jesus coming to do? He was on his way, but he couldn't get there. And he got distracted. What's he going to do? Verse 50. Luke says, but on hearing this, Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, don't fear, only believe, and she'll be well. I mean, the big issue in these stories is the dichotomy of faith versus fear. That's really what's going on here. That's what's going on in the last one. That's what's going on in this one. That's what everything is all about. You're going to suffer. We talked about that last week. We're going to talk about it more in the book of Acts. But the issue is how we actually respond to the circumstances that we face. And how we respond is actually displaying to others and to the world around us what's actually ruling our hearts at that particular time. And Jesus is saying, look, don't fear. Don't fear. It's, it's not as you believe. Verse 51 says, When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter in with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and, and mourning for her. I mean, all of her friends, she's 12 years old. You've got 12-year-old daughters. And think about the squealing and the crying. And all of her friends from town are there. And the moms are there. And the family's there. And they're mourning and they're crying. This girl has now died. And Jesus puts them all out. He just takes his three and he takes mom and dad into the room. And he said, don't weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And I'll tell you from a dad perspective. If someone walked into that room, my son died. And said, don't cry, he's not dead, he's just sleeping. Laughing would be the nicest thing I could have done. Honestly. Laughing was actually probably a kind response. That little girl was dead. And nothing could seem more disrespectful at that moment than for someone to come in and and make light of your mourning. But what Jesus was actually saying is that physical death is not simply the end. See, death is not simply a part of a physical existence and a physical reality. Death is a spiritual reality. See, the reality of it is all of us are dead spiritually. We come into this life depraved in sin and our souls dead to the realities of God. And if that doesn't change, when our bodies die physically and go into the ground, our souls die spiritually and spend eternity apart from God. But in the Bible, sleep is a euphemism for those who die in Christ, those who die in relationship with God. Though they experience physical death and their bodies go into the ground, their souls go to be with Jesus. And when Jesus returns and calls everyone home, he will command the soul to re-enter the body, a new body, a resurrected body, patterned after his body. And what the Bible is saying when it talks about death as sleep, it's for those who find themselves in Jesus, God raising them from the dead is no different and no more difficult than a parent waking a child up from a nap. That's what he's saying. So Jesus isn't being disrespectful, he's just calling it what it is. Verse 54 I love this. Luke said he took her by the hand. Does Jesus need to touch her? I mean, does he have to touch her? Does Jesus really even have to go to the house? Nope, but he does. He reaches out and he takes her by the hand and he called saying, child, arise. And she opens up her eyes and who's the first person she sees? Jesus. Who's the first person she feels touch her? Jesus, who's the first voice that she hears? Jesus. This is an amazing picture. Uh, 
portrayal, a, a snapshot of what it's going to be like of the resurrection of the dead for all who find themselves hidden in God. For all the children of God, when God calls us home and we are raised from the dead and our souls reunite with a resurrected body, first voice we're going to hear is Jesus is the first person to touch us is going to be Jesus. The first person we see is going to be Jesus. And I take unbelievable comfort in this because I know that the last person to touch my son, first person to look into his eyes was me and the last voice he heard was mine. And in that moment, he then heard Jesus' voice. The only other person to touch him was Jesus. The only other voice he heard was his. The only other person to look into his eyes at that point was Jesus. And Luke is saying the same thing is going to be true of all children of God upon the resurrection from the dead. It's a little picture, just a little sidebar. We've got to keep going. Back over to Acts. Acts chapter 9. Now, Luke takes us in this little bit of Acts chapter 9, and he tells us these two stories of Peter. He tells us the story of, of Peter now because of Paul's conversion that we've been looking at, the chief persecutor of the church becoming the chief proponent of the faith, peace is kind of broken out amongst the people in the area, and so Peter's actually out and about outside of Jerusalem ministering, teaching, and preaching. So we first looked at Luke 5, and Jesus was teaching and preaching, and the crowds were gathering, and now in Acts chapter 9, Luke is recording for us that Peter is out in the villages teaching and preaching, and while he's out teaching and preaching, he comes upon what? A paralyzed man, a man named Aeneas. And Peter, looking at Aeneas, he doesn't say, Aeneas, if you have faith in the name of Jesus, Aeneas in the name of Jesus, Peter looks at him and he says, what? (coughs) Jesus heals you. Get up and do what? Get up and make up your bed. Where had he heard that before? Where had he seen that before? Just for those of you who like details, don't miss the significance of Jesus and Peter telling them to make up their bed. These were paralyzed men. They had been laying on that cot 24-7. Eight years for Aeneas. Eight years, someone else has to roll his body over to clean him up. Eight years, he can't bathe himself, he can't get up, he can't move, he can't adjust the pillow, he can't adjust the sheets, he can't get things off of him. He's totally dependent on other people moving him to clean him, to comfort him, to to make it more palatable for him to lay there. Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus heals you. Get up and make up your bed. You're not bound to that thing 24-7 anymore. You've never been able to do that for yourself in the last eight years. Get up and take care of it. Where had he heard that before? Luke is telling us this story that seems so random in the midst of what he's been talking about because he's trying to communicate something really big to us. There's something he actually wants us to to see. And in both places, Luke in chapter 5 and then in Acts chapter 9, he records that upon these particular healings, many people came to know the Lord and glorify the Lord. What does he want us to see? But while Peter's up in Joppa taking care of Aeneas, down in Lydda, there's another woman. Should begin to start to sound familiar to you. There's another woman who's gotten sick, sick unto death. And people who love her and people who care for her hear that Peter is really nearby. He's just about three hours walk from where they are. And in the midst of what he's doing up there, dealing with Aeneas, this woman down here is dying. And people who love her 
decide that they're going to make the trip and they're going to go and they're going to find this man, Peter. Now, I don't know what they thought was going to happen if they found Peter or what they thought Peter was going to do, but they knew that they just had to get to this man of God that they had heard was in town right up the road. And so they go to Peter and they say, you need to come back. You got to get back because Tabitha, our beloved, is, is dead. Peter makes a trip down to, to Lydda to go see Tabitha. And when he gets there, what does he do? He gets in and all the people are mourning, all the people are crying, all the women are wailing. Luke records that, that Tabitha had made garments for many of the widows and what's happened is she, she has cared for many of these widows and made them clothes and taken care of them when other people wouldn't take care of them. Now she's dead and they've all come back and they've brought the clothes that she's made and they're just wailing. If you've ever seen Middle Eastern death, like funerals and, and ceremonies, they're just there wailing and crying and they're shaking all the garments that she's made and they're just distraught and, and Peter shows up and what does he do? Puts them all out of the room. Does it sound familiar? I mean, where would Peter have learned that? He puts them all out of the room while they're crying and while they're wailing and he gets down and he begins to pray. That's a really important detail. Peter kneels beside this lady's body and begins to pray. And then as he prays, he, he turns and and what does he say? He turns to her and says, Tabitha, arise. And here's what's really, really cool about this. And this is what Luke wants you to get. When Jesus was in the home of Jairus and he looked at his little daughter and he said, child, arise. The gospel according to Mark records it in its Aramaic. But what he said was, Talitha kumai. That's how he would have said it in Arabic. When Peter follows in the path of Jesus and he walks into Tabitha's room and he puts everyone out of the room and he kneels down and he begins to pray and God fills his heart and he fills his soul and his spirit at that moment. He looks over at that lady and he says, Tabitha, Kumai. One consonant different. And what Luke wants you to see is he wants you to see that all that Jesus had begun to do on earth, all that he had said and all that he had done, he is continuing to do now at the right hand of God through his people empowered by his spirit. That's the whole point of the book of Acts. That's the whole point of the inclusion of these two random stories about Peter right here at the end of Saul. What does a paralyzed man being brought to Peter and Peter calling him to stand up and take up his mat and put it away and walk away, what's it supposed to remind you of? What's to remind you of what Jesus did to that paralyzed man? What's Luke going, I mean, Peter going into the, the home of, of Tabitha and putting everyone out and, and praying and then commanding her to rise? Supposed to remind you of. It's supposed to remind you of what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter. All to bring home the point that God is still doing what he had said he was going to do through his people empowered by his spirit. Jesus is still healing. Jesus is still cleansing. Jesus is still forgiving. And Jesus is still raising people from the dead. That's the point. That's the point of why these two stories are are here. And here's the thing. As great as they are, and I praise God that those people were healed. I praise God that woman was cleansed. I praise God that that little girl was raised from the dead. I praise God that Tabitha was raised from the dead. But none of those are truly the big miracles. I mean, as big as those miracles are, if you had to choose between being forgiven your sins and being cleansed of your sins and being healed physically, 
The big miracle is that their sins were forgiven and their sins were cleansed and their souls were raised from the dead. That's what these physical miracles are supposed to point us to. See, these accounts, they're, they're not the big miracle. See, spiritually, our souls are in the same shape that these people's bodies were in. Spiritually, our, our souls are, are dead to the realities of, of God in Christ. We have to be saved. We have to be healed. We have to be cleansed. Our souls have to be raised from the dead by someone outside of ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. We can't fix what's ailing us in our own souls. I mean, those two men in, in Luke and in Acts that were paralyzed, that woman who was bleeding, Talitha and Tabitha who were dead, every single one of them lacked the power to fix spiritually what was wrong with them physically. Yet, here's the thing. They were all healed. And they were all brought back to life through, through the spoken command of God. Just as we are spiritually when we hear the word about Jesus and the Holy Spirit makes our souls alive. So here's the thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring it down here because I don't want to put too much in front of you on this. I want you to understand when it comes down, we, you read through these. Jesus, here's the big point Luke is trying to make. Jesus is your only hope in life and in death. That's the big point that Luke is trying to make. Jesus is your only hope in life and in death. Every single one of us, me, you, every single one of us in here have all rebelled against the holy God and earned what we've talked about in the past as a spiritual death penalty. Every single one of us have sinned against the holy God and have earned a spiritual death penalty. All of our pride, all of our arrogance, all of our self-sufficiency, all of our greed, all of our laziness, all of our indifference, all of those things might be excused by us. I mean, we might be able to excuse those things away. We might be able to make uh, excuses for them and, and give defenses for them and, and rationalize them away, but, but God doesn't. God doesn't do that. God sees our sin for what it is. And it's earned for us before a holy God, a spiritual death penalty. But, this is one of the most beautiful things about the scriptures. But God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy when faced with the sinfulness of humanity. Sent his only son, Jesus, to take the punishment for our sins. We talk about it here all the time. God sent his son Jesus here to live the life that we were created to live and then to pay the price for the life that we chose to live instead. And in accepting his substitute and his sacrifice in our place, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead where he sits at the right hand of God right now to rule forever. And in doing that, God raised Jesus to victory. See, don't believe the lie that you can tell yourself. I know because I tell myself all the time. Don't believe the lie that you can impress God. That you can do enough things or say enough things or come up with enough things that can get you out of the doghouse with God. You're not in the doghouse with God. You're in the morgue. You're, you're dead. 
You're dead. And you can't impress him. Dead people don't impress anybody. That's where you are. But in your place, for your sin, he sent his son, Jesus. But for all those who believe on his son, Jesus, he would not only forgive, he would cleanse, he would heal, and he would spiritually raise your dead soul to life. That's what these stories are supposed to point us to. You can only accept the free gift that he offers. And when you do, God will raise you, God will sustain you, God will restore you, God will make you whole, he will cleanse you, and he will forgive you. And if you have any questions about that, and we're here to answer them. Ask me, ask Ray, ask Chris, ask one of the pastors, ask the person who brought you, ask a community leader. We would love to help you explore the questions that you've got about what Jesus did in our place for our sins and how a holy and righteous God has made a way in his wisdom to satisfy his justice without compromising his holiness and his love and mercy. We want to answer those questions for you. Ask somebody. And I'll tell you, if you're curious about the whole inability to fix yourself, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put a plug in for you. Go to mondaynightgospel.com. It's .com or .org, Ray? Com. Rayshawn Graves preached a heck of a sermon on Monday night about man's moral inability to fix himself. You got questions about that? Go listen to that. You got to get this. But some of you come in here and you feel a lot like that woman. You feel a lot like that woman who had that issue of, of blood and there's shame and there's defilement and you can't make it go away. People have done things to you. You have done things to others and you have suffered the pain of those things and you can't seem to wash it off. You can't seem to make it go away. It goes around everywhere you go. It clings to you. And I want you to know something. One of the most beautiful things about that story, when that woman reached out and touched Jesus, you know what didn't happen? She didn't make Jesus unclean. You know what did happen? He made her clean. Some of you come in here and you feel just like her. And there's shame. And it weighs you down. You get it in your brain. You get it a little bit in your heart. But you can't seem to shake this sense of shame and guilt. I want you to know something. Jesus cleanses your sin. He cleanses your conscience and he cleanses your soul. He does that. And I want you to know this. If you would believe, if you would trust, if you would lean into with all that you are, believe. <laughs> That no matter what you've done, whoever you are, however dirty it feels, however dirty it sounds, however defiled your life has been, if you reach out, if you reach out and you just touch him, if you just reach out and believe him, he'll make you clean. And the power of God will move through him into your life and you will be made clean and you will be made whole. You don't have to carry it around. You don't have to feel it. It's gone. That's his promise. So here's what I love. I'll, I'll wrap this up here. All those stories he told in Luke, the stories he tells here in Acts, get this. And I'm going to put everybody in these categories so you don't feel left out. If you're guilty, Jesus forgives you. If you're dirty, Jesus cleanses you. If you're spiritually dead, Jesus raises you to new life. There isn't a person breathing in here that doesn't fall into one of those categories. That's what Luke is wanting you to see in these two little stories. So we need to respond. Jesus forgives, we need to respond. Jesus cleanses, we need to respond. Jesus raises our dead souls to life, we need to respond. And the way that we respond to the work of Jesus in our lives, one is of repentance, repent of our guilt, 
Repent of our shame, repent of our religion and self-righteousness. And we need to respond by being filled with awe and filled with wonder and seized by the joy that comes from knowing that we've been forgiven, we've been cleansed, we've been made whole, and our souls have been raised to new life. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do that. Father, thank you for your son Jesus, his life in our place, his death in our place, and your satisfaction in his work in our place, and your raising him from the dead. I ask, Lord, as Luke record, recorded very simply, may our faith in Jesus, may our faith in Jesus turn into peace in our souls. May we be built up by your Holy Spirit. And may we be a people, individually and corporately as a church, who walk in the fear of you and in the comfort of your Holy Spirit. Amen. For those of you who